and it's Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if you've got your Bible, let's look at chapter 2, and we're going to read to begin verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. That might be the most important line in all of the book of Judges. Verse 2, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this, this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's take a moment and let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, we recognize afresh this year, Lord, that though we resolve to serve you and obey you, Lord, that we do fail. God, we thank you that that is not a surprise to you, that you are a God of faithfulness, even when we are faithless. And so this morning, Lord, would you challenge us, even convict us from your word, but would you do it in such a way that your Holy Spirit might move within us to desire to follow harder after you, not by our own ability, but simply because of your grace, your love, and your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three applications that I want to give you this morning from the book of Judges here in chapter one. Number one, God calls us to faithful obedience. Make no mistake, there is a clear call. God calls us to faithful obedience. Number two, we're going to see we are broken people and sin is serious. We are broken people and sin is serious. But number three, God remains faithful when we are faithless. So number one, God calls us to faithful obedience. This really comes out of the first two verses of chapter one of Judges. Judges one and two says this, the very beginning of the book, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So Judges begins with the death of their hero, the death of Joshua. Joshua was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he was faithful and obedient all the days of his life to lead Israel according to God's word. There's only two guys left, and now one of them is gone. Joshua and Caleb were the last two remaining people who actually physically saw God rescue Israel and all of the promises that took place over that stretch of time. So now Caleb is the last man standing who has actually seen some of these amazing, miraculous things that God has done. So now that Joshua is dead, the people as a whole have a very real question of, now what? What are we going to do? Who are we going to be? In order to answer that, though, they have an answer, and we're going to look at what their answer is, and it's going to require us to back up a little bit further. We're going to go back one book to the book of Joshua. Throughout Joshua, God tells them exactly who they are supposed to be and what they are called to do. So if we go to Joshua chapter 1, I just want to read to you a couple verses in chapter 1. First, God promises them that there is a promised 
land, a specific real place that God has set aside for his people Israel to dwell forever. By the way, if you go to the nation of Israel right now today, that is where they are. They are in God's literal geographic promised land. But God says this to them in verse 6 of Joshua chapter 1, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people, God's people, to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that they have been given. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So God says to his people Israel, be strong and courageous. You have to uproot what is very clearly a superior enemy. Don't turn from God's word. In fact, as you don't turn, as you stay focused on the path of God's word, meditate on it day and night. Drink in God's word to you. And that word is a call, first of all, to faithful obedience. So both in Joshua and in Judges, they are told specifically, fight, defeat, and eradicate the enemy. Now in the Old Testament here, the enemy is clearly a people known collectively as Canaan. It's a whole bunch of different tribes of people who are there in the land that when they're referred to generally, it's Canaan. And that is the enemy that they are supposed to attack. But deeper than that, the root that they are attacking is sin. These are evil people that dwell in the land. As we apply that to ourselves now in the New Testament, though, the call is the same, not that the enemy is a people, but the root enemy in our lives is, was, and will always be sin. To attack, to defeat, to eradicate sin. And for Israel, this is a vastly superior enemy that exists in Canaan. They have more people, more weapons, more stuff across the board. Now, I am not a general. I have never served in the military. But I do know enough to know that if the enemy has 10 chariots and you have one chariot, that's probably a fight that you don't want to pick. But God says to them specifically to do so. He's calling to to a, a faith that will obey, recognizing that on their own, they can't do it. Not only that, if we surveyed all of Joshua and Judges, we'd see that God is going to tell them specifically to eradicate even the tiny little enemies, the tiny little tribes, that if you were thinking in terms of military strategy, you may say it's not worth the time or the effort to deal with these small issues. But God says, I don't want anything or anybody remaining that will separate you from me. So he says, eradicate everything. And so they are called by faith to obey that difficult challenge. Uh, Typically, too, in that era in particular, it would have been easier, rather than trying to eradicate the enemy, to just simply exploit them, force them into some sort of a slavery, make them work for you. But God specifically forbids that throughout. They are commanded never to take that role. So question for us. How do you respond? How do I respond when what I think is wise doesn't match up with what God says is wise? Are you willing to obey God even in the little things, even in the small things that seem unimportant? Because it's much easier to do what we think might be logical 
or to take what might seem like the path of least resistance, which is going to be Israel's temptation over and over again. Another good question for us to consider here at the beginning of the year, what is the role of God's Word in my life? Is it the authority, the unquestionable authority, or is it simply a list of suggestions? Is it the daily need of my soul, or does the Word of God get buried in our to-do list? God says in all this, will you trust me? Will you trust me enough to obey me? Here's what the scripture says elsewhere. Every time there's a fight, every time there's a battle, it says Yahweh gives the enemy into their hands. God is the one fighting the battle on their behalf. And it says Yahweh was with them. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5, the Bible says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That was God's promise to his people then. It's his promise to his people now. Romans 8 says the same thing. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Isaiah 54, nothing formed against me shall stand. God says, my word will never return void in your life. He says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God is good. He's in control of every area of our life. So even those moments when we feel like the culture around us has already turned away from God, even those moments when the enemy attacks in very real, tangible ways, we know today is not a surprise to God. He's in control. He's good. The mission here at New City Church is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. A disciple is a Bible word that simply means follower, a follower of Jesus, that everything that I do is about following him. Or another way of putting it is that everything about me is faithful obedience to Jesus. Will you follow God? Is he the Lord? Tim Keller has a word on this topic. He says this, true discipleship is radical and risk-taking because true disciples rely on God to keep His promises to bless them and not on their own instincts, their own plans, or even their own insurance policies. We're going to trust in God. Number two, here's the bad news laid out as clear as possible. We are broken and sin is serious. This is basically the remainder of Judges chapter 1, but I want to read to you here verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1 and start to see this unfold. Verse 3, Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up. And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. What's going on here? The principle that God is giving us here in his word is that half obedience is no obedience. Um, in our house, we have a slogan we didn't originate it. I'm sure we borrowed it from Gina, who borrowed it from somebody else, who borrowed it from somebody else. But the phrase in our house with our kids is, slow obedience is no obedience. Get that one? 
Slow obedience is no obedience. And by the same token here, half obedience is no obedience. God made it clear what they were supposed to do. They asked the question of God. They prayed. They asked, who shall go up to fight against the Canaanites? And God's answer was what? Judah should go up and fight. And he made the promise clear, I will give the enemy into their hands. But Judah doubts God and thinks, I should probably bring Simeon along. That seems like a good idea, right? There's no I in team. Let's do this together. It'll be great. Strength in numbers, and it's that same slippery slope of temptation that says, God has told me one thing, but what I see looks different. But it's a reminder here, God wants us to embrace Him as Lord in even the small areas of our life. It says that the Lord was faithful. The Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. God won the battle. Fast forward to the next verse. This is chapter 1, verse 6. Adonai Bezek is the king of this group of people, fled, but they pursued him and caught him and, you know, cut off his thumb and his big toes. Awesome. Whoa, hey, easy. That's not cool. Um, uh, we have a Jesus Storybook Bible at home. Maybe you guys have a di- you know, some different kids' Bibles, different fun creation, Noah's Ark, fun stuff. This story did not make it into the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? It, however, is in the complete Word of God Bible that they cut off this guy's thumbs and big toes. So this is a good time for us to pause for just a second and talk about God's justice, and in particular about God's justice here in the Old Testament and understand what is going on, because as a 21st century reader, we may read that and go, I don't know if I'm cool with that. That seems questionable to me. Because the question is actually a lot deeper than that. It is this in its simplest form. How could God command the Israelites to wipe these people out? Because that is what God has specifically told them to do. So if you've had that question, good question. Let's talk about it. Um, Is this just Israelite imperialism? Are they just claiming, hey, God told me to do this, so that gives me the right to do whatever I want? Um, Let's look at it. So here's the first thing. This enemy king does not see it as an injustice. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. And Adonai Bezek, Adonai means Lord, so he's the Lord of Bezek. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and shocker, he died. He died there. You see what he's saying there? This is the king himself assessing the situation, and he's telling you, I am not innocent. My culture is not innocent. What they did to me, I did to 70 other kings, the exact same thing. He admits that he was himself a serial torturer and murderer, and it is here God, not the Israelites, but God himself who is bringing justice. Here's what we should take away, even today. God is perpetually at war with sin. God is at war with sin. And it should be, at the very least, it should actually be a comfort to us that as much as I may hate sin, as much as I may see injustice and despise that injustice, I promise you, God hates it more. 
That's a huge comfort to me, that the God that I serve is a God of complete justice. If we were to do a little survey, we'd see in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 18 a little bit more about who these Canaanites, this large group of people, really is. The Bible tells us that they were guilty of sorcery, witchcraft, casting spells, using spiritists to consult with the dead, every form of sexual perversion, including prostitution and rape, murder, and what I would say is probably the worst thing on here, this group of people was known for child sacrifice, which literally means that they would take their children and throw them into the fire and watch them burn alive as an offering of worship to their idols and their false gods. You need to understand these people, first of all, are not innocent. Uh, one commentary talks about what's happening here as an intrusion ethic, meaning that God has intruded early into history and brought judgment, real judgment, to these people now in the moment for what they have done, knowing that God is a God of justice and that judgment is reserved for all who do not know the Savior. This judgment is also given specifically by direct revelation. God specifically spoke this as an instruction to Joshua. So there is no one who can claim that they have been given personal justification for any sort of holy war. That era was specific and it has ceased. This is not a war for imperialistic expansion, and we know that because God specifically tells them, do not make any of them into slaves, do not take any of their stuff, any of their plunder. In fact, we have a story about a guy named Achan who was an Israelite. And when he took stuff, God pointed it out, and he himself was killed for his disobedience in this area. But we get another thing, too. We get people like Rahab. You remember Rahab? Rahab is a Canaanite. Rahab is not only a Canaanite, Rahab is a prostitute. But when she declares faith in God and recognizes that God is good, God is Savior, and God is just... She is saved from this very specific judgment. And so here again in the Old Testament, we see this clear message that faith and trust in God is the one way to be saved from God's judgment. And that, in fact, if Rahab can be saved, then anybody can be saved. So God's showing his need, our need for Jesus. He's showing the reality of judgment that judgment, again, is coming for all people and that there is one hope and one solution in Jesus because our sin is serious. We, too, are called to be perpetually at war with sin in the same way that God is at war with sin. Check out verse 19 now as the Scripture continues on in this story. It says this, "'The Lord was with Judah.'" even though he was disobedient. It says, the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. What we're going to continue to see unfolding here is this. Small areas of disbelief produce large areas of disaster. Small little areas of disbelief Small little areas of disobedience will inevitably create massive areas of disaster. What's happening here is this is the beginning of a super long list of excuses that Judah is giving, and the Word of God just makes clear that they are not legitimate reasons. And we might read that and initially go, man, I feel bad. 
They've got iron chariots. Clearly, the implication is the Israelites don't have iron chariots. But what they do have is God, and they've got to trust Him. See, it's not our lack of strength or our lack of ability or our lack of iron chariots that keeps us from enjoying a God. It's our lack of faith in trusting Him. So 119 right here, they say we were unable. But God's assessment in chapter 2 and verse 2, God says, no, no, you were unwilling. That's a huge question to ask. Where are the places that we look at God and we say, God, I can't? And God says, it's not a matter of you can't, it's a matter of you won't. It's not a matter of ability, it's a matter of the heart. Will you trust me? Will you give your heart and your life to me? So this little episode here in verse 19 of excuses happens, happens seven more times just in the chapter where they make an excuse. Benjamin fails to dislodge the Jebusites. Manasseh fails to drive out the enemy because it says the enemy was determined. Um, Zebulun, Ephraim, Naphtali, Asher didn't drive out the enemy, but instead did what they were told not to, which is they put the enemy to slavery or forced labor. Then it says the enemy uh, Amorites forced out the tribe of Dan. So now it's a 180-degree shift. They were supposed to push these people out. Now they themselves are being pushed out. And again, we see the small areas of disbelief inevitably produce massive areas of disaster. Sometimes we walk into church. Maybe you haven't walked into church for a while. You think, man, these people cannot possibly know the level of my sin. These people cannot possibly be struggling the way that I'm struggling. These people look like they've got it all together. This is a great moment for us to just check back into the reality that nobody in this room has it all together. There is nobody in this room that does not struggle still with sin. So if you are saying, man, I am struggling and I am in desperate need of God's grace, I am a broken person, then there is a seat for you and you will fit right in because I will tell you, we are messed up here at New City Church. Amen? That's good news though because God has made a way to deal with it. Broken people are going to fit right in. But it's worth asking the question here as we consider the seriousness of sin Where do you find it hard to follow God in faith rather than following your own wisdom? Isn't it good news, though, that the Bible doesn't just end here? The Bible doesn't just end with you're a sinner and you're broken. It doesn't end with you need to resolve to do better and fix it. It's not where the Scripture ends. Number three and finally, God remains faithful when we are faithless. This brings us back to where we started in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, two different towns. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. The angel of the Lord is going up from Gilgal. I don't know anything about the city of Gilgal except one thing. Gilgal is the city, Gilgal is the place where God made his covenant with Joshua. Gilgal is the specific place where God promised to his people Israel the promised land. Gilgal is the place where God made his covenant promise to forgive his people and to never break that promise. 
Gilgal is the place where he said, even if you are faithless, I will be faith-filled. And what we're seeing here is that the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God, has never left that place. So you get the picture here. Even though Israel has very literally walked away from God, God has not walked away from His promises. God is steadfast, staying right where He said He would be, even as God's people walked away. And that is the gospel on display already. Old Testament, yes, but God is still fully there in His plan. We are seeing unfold before us. And God restates his promises. He says, I led you out of Egypt. I led you out of slavery already. I led you into the promised land. I will never break my covenant promise with you. And I hope what we see here is that their repentance, that's evidenced by their weeping in just a second, their repentance is not driven or motivated by resolve. Their repentance is motivated by grace. You see the difference? Their repentance is not driven by or motivated by them or anything that they could possibly do. Their repentance is driven by what God has already done. God says, you've disobeyed me. God says, the Canaanites are going to be a thorn in your side and a snare. There are consequences in this life when we disobey God. And the people respond to that with weeping. They respond to their sin with crying over what they have done. You ever been there? God, how could I possibly be here again? How could I possibly have made this same mistake again? But does the conviction that God brings lead your heart towards Him? Does it lead your heart towards life? I cling to promises like I see here in Joel chapter 2. Listen to Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts. It means tear your hearts, open your hearts to me, not your garments. See, in the Old Testament, one of the physical ways that people would display their grief is they would literally tear open their clothes. But God is saying, I don't need an outward action. Open your heart to me. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious." and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So as they repent, they're driven to this place that we ought to be called to as well of saying, oh God, would you make me a faithful man, a faithful woman of obedience and trust? Would you make me a family of obedience and faithfulness? Would you make us a church of obedience and faithfulness? Would you make us a city and a nation of obedience and faithfulness, not on our own, but by your grace? I weep over my sin, the fact that I have rejected in any possible way the God of this universe. Forgive me for the places that I have not trusted in you. I know that you're the source of hope, and I know that you're the source of grace, so would you turn my heart back to you? That is his call. Here's the bad news. God is holy. God is just. God must punish sin, and He does so by pouring out all of His wrath for sin on Jesus on the cross. The destruction of the Canaanites, by comparison, is trivial 
at best compared to God's total judgment that was poured out on Jesus. Jesus was tortured. Jesus was murdered by God's people Israel. And in so doing, God began to pour out his justice on Jesus himself so that we would not have to experience that justice because the good news comes out of that bad news. God is not only a God of justice who punishes sin. God is a God of love. God is a God of grace who knew the only way that he could save us was to send his one and only son. God is a loving father who gave up his only son so that he might save us as his children. He loves his kids even though they sin, even though I sin, even though we sin. And the way that he made that possible was by sending his one and only son. It's only in the cross, only in Jesus that we find the solution to this problem. So the call here is clear. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The gospel call here is clear. Cry out to Jesus for hope and for help. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus is the only one who kept the covenant promises perfectly. Where we failed, he succeeded. Jesus killed the enemy of your sin that you and I could never kill. Jesus makes a way for you to enter into the eternal promised land. You know, the, the, the book of Judges is going to be filled with a lot of different men and actually one woman as well. And each one of them is called a, a judge. Um, judge in, in this context has almost nothing to do with what you think of as a modern day judge. The word judge in Hebrew literally means to judge is to save. To judge is to rescue. And so God will send these men and this woman to be a temporary savior or rescuer of God's people. But what we're going to see is the judges in this book can't do anything to ultimately fix the problem of sin because they can't fix a problem that they're inflicted with themselves. I heard a story recently, and it's the perfect story for our kids coming back in. I heard a story recently about a grandmother who was babysitting for a child. They had a pool in the backyard. The child jumped into the pool, and as you can imagine, that child was young and did not know how to swim. The child began to drown. The grandmother jumped into the pool to rescue the child, but the grandmother didn't know how to swim either. When the rescuers came, they found that they had lost both grandmother and child because you can't save somebody if you have the same problem yourself. This is why I can't save any of you. This is why you can't save your children, and this is why we need Jesus so desperately. The book of Judges will reveal that Jesus is the one true judge, the one true rescuer, because he is not afflicted with sin. He came perfectly to do for us what we could never do ourselves. Amen? Let's take a moment, let's pray to that good and loving Father who did for us what we could never do ourselves. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your goodness. 
Lord, we ask that in this new year that you might continue to make it clear to us. Open our eyes, Lord, our families, Lord, our children who have just rejoined us. Open their eyes, Lord, that we might see more clearly your goodness and your grace. And Father, even as the Word of God convicts and reveals places that we come up short, it reminds us, Lord, that we are not perfect. We may kid ourselves sometimes and say, my sin is not that bad, it's not that big of a deal, but the Word of God says otherwise. It shows us that we are in need of saving. So, Father, Lord, if we come to you this morning as a believer, Lord, I pray for each believer in this room, Lord, that you might strengthen their faith, that their resolve to follow you by your grace might be increased, that your Holy Spirit might be poured out upon us, that we might follow hard after you as your disciples, lifting you up, Jesus, as the one true king in our lives. And Father, we repent and we ask for forgiveness for the places that we have turned our back to you, whether it be a small place or a big place or anywhere in between. And Father, I pray for those who are still trying to understand who Jesus is. I pray for those who are wrestling with, with faith and questions or are doubting you, Father, that you might reveal your goodness and your grace as well as your truth and your justice to them. Father, they might run to you and with tears that they might cry out to you and say, Jesus, I need you to do what I could never do for myself. Father, we ask all of these things in your great and gracious name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.